This Front Row Rugby episode appeared originally on YouTube. Our guest on Front Row Rugby today is Springbok legend, former fullback and World Cup winner, Andre Hubert. Andre, a warm welcome to you. Thank you, Peter. Yeah, nice to be on your, on your blog. Andre, let's go back to 1992, South Africa returning to international rugby against the All Blacks. You weren't part of that squad. You only got your chance in 1993 against the Wallabies. Uh, how frustrating was that for you? Yeah, it was a frustrating period. You know, um, during that period, I actually had quite a few injuries. Uh, well, I actually played my first Springbok game in 1989 and subsequently after that I went through a few injuries and uh, I picked up one major groin injury while in those days we still played trials and having it at Loftus, as I was taking a penalty kick, I tore my groin muscle. So I was out for six months and obviously it was a you know, long period for rehab and all that. So eventually I got back after 1992 and back and in 1993 I was back on the tour to Australia. Yeah, so it was a difficult time, but you know, You've got to work through those kind of difficulties and then it always makes you a better player at the end of the day. And then you stayed in the side pretty much uh, all the way through to 1997. You were known in that time as the Rolls-Royce of fullbacks. How special was that period for you? Yeah, I know it was a special period. You know, as I said earlier, you know, every, every uh, player has got to go through the injuries. And uh, I think if you work through injuries and you get to top level again, you know, then you kind of set physically and mentally, you know, to prepare for all kind of games lying ahead of you. I think people don't realize how many coaches I've been through, you know, you're talking about that period. If I think my first coach was Sissel Moss in 1989, and then from 93 onwards, I think it was Mac, and then after Mac came Kitsch Christie, and after Kitsch Christie came Andre Markgraf, Harry Fulhune, yeah, and Nick Mallet, and uh, uh, yeah, no, so I went through a few uh, coaches, you know, in my career. So, yeah, I must say my career has been special from 1992 onwards until 1997. Yeah, it, it really did feel like there was, uh, or it was a case of a new year, a new Springbok coach in those days at, at, at some stage. Um, Andre, let, let's go to 1995. It's the World Cup, it's in South Africa. Our opening match is against the Wallabies at Newtons. They are the defending world champions. How nervous were you guys leading into that match? You no, know, we were nervous. I must say, I still remember when we got off the plane there in Cape Town. You know, had the, you know, you had the calves of clubs, you know, all singing for us and all celebrating, you know, for the, celebrating the World World Cup. So I must say we were quite nervous, but but kind of a confident nervous. And uh, so I think we prepared very, very well. We knew we were and we, we knew that we were very, very fit team. You know, uh, kids drilled us on the on running on around the uh, Joba golf course there. So fitness-wise, we were on top of the game, you know. So I think at the end of the day, just how to kind of apply ourselves in the games lying ahead. And well, I think as everybody know, we had a great start to the World Cup by beating the, the Aussies. I think they were number one at that stage convincingly. So it was a great start for us. 27-18, it was a great result. Great start to the World Cup for the box. And then beating Romania and Canada after that, heading into the quarterfinals against, they were still called Western Samoa uh, in those days. And you suffered quite a quite a nasty hand injury in that quarterfinal. Talk to me about that. Yeah, it was quite, yeah, it was the quarterfinals against Samoa. And it was quite an open game. And I think those days, you know, the high tackle was still legal. You know, I think, I think in the modern game, there would have been quite a few red cards. <laughs> coming to play in that game. And yeah, I think it happened at about 15 minutes into the game. I took, um, I, got a, I think I got a skip pass on the outside and I went through the gap. And as I went through the gap, Tuna Mongo came and he gave me like a front arm high tackle, you know. 
And as I ran with the ball, he obviously his knuckles, his hand hit, hit the back of my, my left hand, which broke the metacarpal in my left hand. But you know, at that stage, your adrenaline is going, you're running. And after a while, I felt, you know, my finger was hurting a bit and I could push it. And then actually the bone was sticking out on the top. I strapped it up and tried to play a bit onwards, but then the doc said, listen, we better get this sorted out. And, you know, as I came off the field, and then I realized that my hand was broken. And, you know, obviously the first thing that came into my mind, you know, my World Cup is over. And later that night, you know, those days we were still having cocktails. And and then there was a Dr. Mark Ferguson. He said, listen, come, come and see me the next morning. Let's see what we can do with your hand. And let's put a pin in and let's see how your hand reacts to it. Obviously, I went for operation that uh, Sunday morning. I think the op was finished by 10 o'clock. And then I went back home to, to Durban and because Kitchen is all home. And then my hand was quite swollen and uh, with this pin obviously being inserted in it. And uh, we got back uh, uh, on Tuesday back to, to, um, to Joburg where we had our training. And then Kitch said, listen, as I walked into the team, we said, listen, you are. You know, those days, um, you know, to, to kill our time in the hotel, we played a lot of table tennis. So I said to Juba, listen, you take a table tennis bat and start playing a bit of table tennis. So I held it and I must say it felt quite comfortable with a bit of pain, but it felt quite comfortable. And then Kitch said, okay, Juba, you look okay. Get yourself ready. And But, you know, but I think the key thing is my hand was quite swollen a bit. And those days there was a new technology that came to the fore. They called it the, the compression, uh, decompression chamber, where they kind of lower you like below sea level and then put a lot of, oxygen through your system, which really helped a lot with the swelling. So I must say, and then obviously you knew what happened that Saturday when we started playing France. Yeah, let's talk about what happened against France. I mean, that must be probably the wettest rugby field, uh, certainly that I've seen, you know, uh, watching rugby as a, as a fan over the years. I'm assuming that that must be the, the, the wettest conditions that you've ever played in as well. Definitely was. And, uh, you know, obviously wet conditions become quite difficult for fullback play because fullback play comes more into play now. And, and but before we got to the game, and as the clouds were open up with the rain and they're just carrying rain around, there was a guy from Ireland, I can't remember his name. He kind of said to me, he, he saw those days that I broke my hand and I received the facts with him from him earlier in the week at the receipt, arriving in the hotel. Said, yeah, they got a kind of hockey game there in Ireland where they use these kind of gloves and you would like to send me one which will help your protection. And also I said, yeah, thank you very much. That'll be great. You know, it'll definitely help with the bumps and bruises. Or... And Saturday morning arrives, no gloves yet. You know, and as I can see, you know, the time's running and I haven't even had time to train with this glove. And eventually this glove arrived at about, I think at about half past 12 at the hotel. And I think we were leaving at quarter to two, two o'clock for the game because the game does, I think it was at three o'clock. So eventually this glove arrived and then I fitted it on and it fitted like a real glove as, you know, <laughs> as you would say, and it was perfectly fit. And as you know, the game was delayed, I think by an hour, hour and a half. But, you know, the guards are looking on to us and we managed to pull that game off. And, you know, while, while we're playing the game, and I remember in the first up and under, uh, it was Thierry Lecroix and Philippe Salah, you know, on the first up and under. As I took the ball, the first thing they do, they didn't go for the ball. They, they just gone for my fingers just to try and pull it back and say, listen, yeah, we want the ball. So I said, well, if you want the ball that desperately, you can have it, you know. <laughs> 
But luckily, it went our way, as I said earlier. You know, the guys are looking onto us. They managed to pull that game off and gone through to the finals. For sure, I, I'm quite interested in that story because I think that from from our point of view as fans watching back in 1995, the impression was always that the glove was part of the medical rehabilitation. So I suppose that. Our, if you had asked any of us, we would have been thinking, oh, Andre just received the glove probably on the Monday uh, ahead of the test match. So that's that's very interesting. You know, I think in a way, you know, because it was such a major injury, but I knew I was at risk and also putting my team at risk. So, you know, every bit of help, with, like in terms of a glove, did help, you know, with the bumps against the hand. And it, it definitely gave me a bit more confidence, you know, fielding the ball and passing the ball and obviously to do some tackles. And yeah, it definitely certainly did give me a bit of confidence. But you know, it's amazing how strong the mind can be once you're given a second opportunity. You know how strong the mind can be over the matter. And yeah, you know, it really went our way. And that's why I keep on telling youngsters. You know, it's not about the physicality at the end of the day, but it's all about the mind. How strong your mind is, and it's amazing how your mind can can adapt to situations and make you really pull out some extraordinary. Events. Absolutely. Now, in the week leading up to the final, as you well will remember, the media talk was all about Jonah Lomu. I'm interested to know, within the Springbok camp, how many discussions actually took place, particularly about Lomu? Look, Jonah Lomu was a—he was an unbelievable player. I think worldwide, especially in that days, he was a top player, he was in top form, and I think every team feared him in, in some kind of way. And, but I think some, you know, we were quite confident because at that stage we actually had the best defensive record, you know, because not none of the big runners have ever scored against South African rugby. And I think South African rugby has always been known for their defence. And at that stage, Jonah Lomo has never scored a try against South Africa. And even after the World Cup, he's never ever scored a try. So I think we had that kind of confidence that our defence was, was properly secured. And... But you know, I think also we had it worked out that every ball or every play was around Jonah Loma. And we knew, and, and Kitch was just very clever in that way, say, listen, Jonah is going to receive the ball either the first phase or second phase, you know, and we just had to kind of um, add him to, you know, you know to, 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 to cover him. And that's where at US and Mark Andrews just kind of ran that line and always made sure he didn't cro- had any momentum picking up because once he starts picking up momentum, then he can be devastating and destructive. But Hurst and, and uh, Mark managed to stop him within one yard and there was no momentum, which I think put the All Blacks on a bit of back foot, so they didn't have the front momentum, so that kind of was a bit of a disruption to the, to the game plan. Andre, it's interesting because obviously at the time it's about adrenaline and it's nerves and I remember watching it as a little boy and you know we were all sitting on the edges of our seats. But now, many years later, I've watched that match back, the final, uh, quite a few times. And it's my opinion that the Springboks were actually quite comfortable in that match. To me, it looked like we were, I wouldn't necessarily say in control at all times, but it never really looked like we were second best on the day. I'm interested to know from you, how did you experience, how did it actually feel to you on the day in that uh, situation? Peter, when you come to finals, I think your defense is one of your best um, defensive mechanisms and as I said earlier you know our, our defense team our defense was excellent and 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 we knew we we had um, Jonah Loma covered and I think what helped us is that we played as a team I think where the All Blacks were played around Jonah Loma all the time and we knew that we live in a Jonah Loma that'll put them on a bit of back foot and I think they were a bit when it did happen I think they were a bit 
uh, put out of their guard. They, they were not easy and comfortable. They had to play a bit on the back foot, and I think that was a big disruption to them. Yeah, so we had a confidence in, in ourselves that, you know, we've come so far, we've worked so hard, and also in front of your home ground, and Alice Park has always been a good good for us, and yeah, so we had that confidence that we can pull it off. I know we push it up to extra time, you know, so it was... <laughs> I think we spectator wise must have been that next um, extra time minutes must have been it must have been the hardest thing to watch. But you know, as I said earlier on, you know, I think we were very, very blessed and yeah, we managed to pull off a great win for South Africa. Something else that was brewing at the time was rugby being on the verge of moving from an amateur era into a professional one. Uh, we've read lots of stories uh, about Francois Pinar speaking to you guys about professional contracts. Uh, he wrote about it in his book, Rainbow Warrior, as well. Uh, Andre, from your perspective, how would you describe what was going on behind the scenes? Pre-95, uh, it was, uh, you know, rugby was still amateur. And obviously, during the 95, that's when we started hearing about things, you know, it's going to change after, after the 95 World Cup and start kicking in 1996. But there's obviously Kerry Packer who kind of came up with us um, to, you know, to through, you know, to be the disruption in the, in the amateur status to make it professional. And yeah, you know, we had so many things, and at the end of the day, it was quite difficult because I think Kerry Packer approached a lot of our provincial teams, and then we we were on the side of um, Louis Late, you know, who was um, part of the Murdoch setup. So. It was quite a split camp, and um, I say when after national or after being a training with the Springboks, when we arrived back at at uh, the Sharks back then, there was kind of a split camp because the Sharks wanted us to join them, but then we obviously were kind of forced to stay with Relay. So there was quite a bit of difficulty during the training sessions, and yeah, that was, was a very very difficult period. And uh, but you know, as the game had to turn. Uh, uh, professional, then it was still semi-professional and you know, as you know it's, it's gone now fully professional, but those semi, semi-professional days was quite a big adaption you know, so you don't know what to expect what to do I had to resign from my job because um, they were saying listen, you're becoming a semi-professional rugby player now, so I couldn't put the hours back into my business back then, or my job back then, and hence that's when I started my own business back in 1996 and I realized, like, listen, yeah, I've got to start something now in lieu of rugby when the day when it finished, at least I've got something to fall back onto. So, yeah, so it was a very, very difficult time, very difficult decision times because I could have resigned from my job and then break my leg in that first year. So it's, it could have been difficult, you know, but at least, but it went my way. So I was very blessed. It was a difficult time also for the Springboks, not, obviously not 1995, but then in 1996, as, as we spoke a little bit earlier, new coach and all of that, uh, Kitch Christie obviously um, had to resign for health reasons, and then Andre Marcroft came in, uh, and the, the Tri-Nations was at the time this brand new competition, and the Springboks didn't win many matches uh, in the Tri-Nations, and then there was that series against the All Blacks straight afterwards, and... Uh, many of the, the, the sort of score lines were quite close, but the box just couldn't quite get over the line uh, until that final match against New Zealand at Ellis Park. Uh, and ultimately that meant that South Africa lost a series at home against New Zealand for the first time. Why do you think things went wrong for the box? 
I think, you know, first of all, you know, when there's a change of coach, it's quite difficult. Obviously, a new coach comes in with his new ideas. He obviously wants to kind of he get his star kind of players in the system. And you remember um, the relationship between a coach and players gets built over time. You know, I think a coach can't just move in and kind of stamp down his kind of authority and his game plan. So I think in the beginning, a coach has just got to feel the players. And back then, I think that was one of the reasons because of a new coach. So it's a new environment, new kind of game plan. And also, if you can look at the 1995 World Cup, there was quite a few older players in the system. I think I was the oldest, actually. And uh, and post uh, the 95 World Cup, those days we still had to play club rugby and uh, pro provincial rugby. So we were never managed. I think a lot of injuries also stepped in. So a lot of key players were injured during that series, and I think that also had a huge impact on the result at the end of the day. And as you would know that yeah, we lost the series, and looking at those score lines, they were very, very close at the end of the day. But I think that was always the thing between New Zealand and South Africa in, 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 that, in that series when they toured here. Everything was very, very close, but at least we pulled off the last one at Ellis Park again, so managed to pull it off 2-1, you know, or well, to lose by 2-1 at least ending on a high. So Andre, straight after that, it, there was a tour, uh, two tests in Argentina, two against France, and then uh, wrapping up the year in Wales. And of course, the bombshell was Andre Marcroft dropping Francois Pinar. Uh, how shocked were you by that? You know, I think the most important thing about rugby, especially in the professional era, there's got to be a relationship between the coach and the captain. And I think that was one of the things, one of our success in the 1995 World Cup, because Kitsch and Francois had a very good relationship. And I think in, in, the, in France was kind of like the intermediate between the team and the management. Uh, look, the relationship between Andre and Francois, I don't, I don't, I don't maybe, I don't know there what it was, but I think for, uh, what, what Nick was looking, uh, uh, what Andre was looking for was to start rebuilding the Springboks with younger players. And I think that was maybe the initiative behind it of dropping Francois and start looking at the, at the younger generation to replace the older generation. So I think that was the reason for that. Did you notice a different mood in the camp on that 96 tour? No, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. I think that was actually a great tour. We, won, uh, we beat the French. So, and you know, it's always good to have young players coming in and uh, you still have to have the, the older guard around that. But it was, it was a good blend that Andre picked. And yeah, it was a very, very successful tour. So it was, uh, so it was a very good mood in the camp at the end of the day. You know, I think if you win, then everything is good. But if you start losing, then everything can go bad. But I think we knew we had to start winning to make it a successful tour for us. And how satisfying was the series win over the French? Oh, it was excellent. <laughs> I think, you know, I can, at least I can say I've never lost a game against the French. So it was a good win series for us in France. You know, I think that's one of the most difficult places to go on tour. And I remember the French will put you in the centre of Paris but they'll put your, your training facilities about two and a half, three hours outside of Paris. So every morning we had to leave by seven o'clock. And by the time you get back into your, into your hotel, it's like three o'clock in the afternoon. So it was a whole day excursion and a lot of traveling, you know, to get to the field. So it was very, very difficult circumstances. But at the end of the day, you know, it's all about winning on the field on a Saturday, which we pulled off.
Okay, Andre, I've read that Markrov promised you guys the week off if you beat the French in that series, uh, and then obviously finishing off against Wales. Tell me about that last week before the Welsh test. How much fun did you guys have? No, it was great fun, you know, and, and I must say I must admire Andre for keeping to his promise because, you know, us winning the series against France, you know, that was our, our goal to go and beat the French. And then, yeah, I think it wasn't actually against Wales. I think it was actually against the Irish like invitation team we had to come play our last game but you know we had a we were all partying that week and we were I think we only had one training session it was a Thursday this is a warm-up before that game but I think we lost that game yeah so it wasn't uh, it was still a close game but it was yeah but we just went out to go play some kind of Bavarian running rugby and it was a good festive game I think at the end of the day it was a great it wasn't a test match game it wasn't tight and 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 just kicking and but it was a really open kind of game, and it, I think it was most enjoyable for the crowd. So I think they had a great fun that week, the, the people watching that game. And then we all know what happened with Mark Croft. Um, he was then replaced by Carl Duplessis, who came in uh, for the, the British and Irish Lions. We lost that series, as, as we now know. Um, a lot of people felt at the time that it was a weak Lions squad, uh, especially if you compare to the Lions teams that we've seen in 2009 and again um, in 2021 in South Africa. A lot of people think we should never have lost that series. What is your take? Yeah, you know, again, there was a change of, of, of coaching uh, within one year space. Uh, there was no time for a coach to start building a team. So we had new coaches coming in. They had to take over players. So they had to, and there was no time to kind of learn these players to kind of understand what their weaknesses or what their strengths were. So Carl and Gertmal were thrown straight into the deep. And it was very, very difficult. And I think at that stage, Carl and them were coaching Falls Bay Rugby Club. So for them, there was a straight leap from club rugby to test match rugby. You know, so it was quite a quite a difficult or, or quite a massive leap, you know, in terms of coaching. And we as players felt, you know, look, they, they were exceptional rugby players, but I think they were still in the, in the youth of their coaching career. So very, very inexperienced. And uh, I must say the players were very not confident in, in, in a coaching style that was presented to them back then, you know. So, But as you know, we started off badly and then we lost the series, disappointingly. And I think one of the key things why we also lost the series because uh, of the kicking between me and Henry Honeyball, we missed quite a lot of goal kicks. And I think that was one of the things. When you come to test match rugby, you know, kicking is, is needs to be pinpoint if you want us to, if, if you want, want to win a series. So... So our kicking wasn't up to up to standard at that stage, and yeah, so it was a very very difficult series. And then later, I think after in the tri, tri nations, we uh, started then then the task started turning because that team went through a lot of critics. We lost quite a few games, and we were criticised a lot. And I think the biggest turnaround is when we beat Australia in Pretoria with a massive score, I think, of 63-21. And and I think that was the first time that team ever tasted, started tasting victory. And as you know, after that, they got to win through 19 games in a row. So I think any good team has to go through the doldrums to be criticised all the time. But once they start going, once they start uh, turning the tide and, and, and up, they're a very, very difficult team to win. In that Tri-Nations um, that, that you just mentioned, 
as you say, the box put 60 past the Wallabies. Um, a couple of rounds before that, the All Blacks put 50 past South Africa. I think the score was 55-35. Um, it's just interesting to me how you would have a competition between three teams that are, shall we say, relatively evenly matched, and yet you could still get such high scores. What do you think brings that about? You know, um, any team works to peaks and troughs, you know, and I think at that stage, the All Blacks have, have, have built up, built up, and then that day when they beat us 53 uh, 55-35 you know we were kind of still building to 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 try and achieve a, a win so our confidence was very low and the All Blacks have just peaked at the right time and I think after that great loss uh, uh, we, we, which we had there against All Blacks then we I think we, then we just said yeah this is enough and enough and as I said earlier we just been on that upward and I, I think we realised listening we've had enough pain now been criticised enough, and then we were on that upward curve, and, and we we hammered uh, Australia, you know, by the same margin. But you know, that's how rugby works, and you know, we beat Australia by 63-21. And funny enough, two years later, the Australians went to win the World Cup. That test at Loftus that you mentioned, when we put 60 past the Wallabies, as it turns out, that was your last test match for the Springboks. Um, how disappointing was it for you that it ended there? Yeah, you know, uh, look, I don't thought it was going to end, and I thought I was still in the run because I still set my goal. Although I was, I think I was 34 when uh, when uh, then, and then I still had my my, my mindset on the 1999 World Cup. But I was battling that stage with a right knee injury, which was kind of slowing me down. It was hampering me quite a bit. And obviously, uh, on the year into it, um, it was Nick Mallard who got chosen as a head coach. And he came and saw me and he asked me, Juba, would I, uh, can I please come on a tour uh, on the NHL? So he said, Nick, I really would love to, but unfortunately, I'm battling with a knee injury at the moment. I'd like to get it sorted out, have an op on it. And then I can be ready and start building myself for, for, for 1999. I think, um, yeah, obviously, I think Nick didn't like what I had to say. And uh, I said, listen, yeah. And then, uh, as you know, he took Percy on the tour. And Percy had a very great tour. And I think since then, well, since the, after that tour, you know, Percy was uh, selected to be the fullback. That's exactly the way it worked out. In fact, as I recall, um, I actually think Justin Swart was playing fullback for Western Province in the, in the Curry Cup winning side uh, with Percy at, at centre. And then Nick Mallett was the one that, that, uh, that switched Percy to fullback, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's correct. I think, you know, Justin was in it, but then I think they moved into right wing. And, but at least I can say I gave Percy his first try in, my, in his, in his promo career because in that Australian match, I gave him a long pass which he ran right through the team, you know, from the halfway line. So, <laughs> no, but I think Percy also had a great spring up career, which is great to see that he followed on afterwards. Let's finish with a funny moment, uh, a memorable moment from your time at the Springboks. Well, I think the funniest moment I think I would recall is most probably, um, you know, as I said earlier on, uh, Nick Mallet was assistant coach to Andre Makarov on the, on the, on the in Paris and as I told you that, you know, the bus trip to the training grounds took us about two and a half, three hours. And that morning, every morning before we, before we left, we always had breakfast and then we had a cup of coffee. So we just thought, you know, it would be a good initiation for Nick on this tour to, to we could pull some kind of prank on him. So before we got onto the bus, we put a dormicum into his uh, coffee. He obviously had an, he finished his entire coffee and then we got onto the bus 
And then, as you know, Dormicum, you know, if, if things are slow, you know, it kicks in very quickly. So Nick fell asleep and we went to our training session. After we came back from our training session, we told Nick, now come, Nick, we're going back now. And he obviously slept through the whole training session. So the Dormicum did its work and he missed his first training session. So <laughs> he wasn't happy, but we all thought it was great, you know. <laughs> That's Nick's first initiation to the Springbok Tour. Andre, is that a normal thing that the players would initiate the coach? No, well, he was assistant coach, so he was still there, you know, so he wasn't the head coach, you know, and uh, I think we discussed it with, uh, with uh, Andre Markov before, and he thought it was a great idea, you know, so, <laughs> so it was with the blessing of Andre that we did it. All right, cool. Sounds sounds great. Um, Andre, that brings a, an end to our time here together on Front Row Rugby. I just want to say thank you very much for being available and it would be lovely to have you on again in the future. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for the invite. Great being on your show. Last time on Front Row Rugby, former Springbok captain Adrian Richter was my guest. You can watch that video by clicking on the link appearing on the screen right now. Next time, we will have another former Springbok captain, Corne Krecher. This Front Row Rugby episode appeared originally on YouTube. If you enjoyed this content, please consider subscribing and sharing with your friends. See you next time.